Hi, friends, and welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. I know I'm releasing this a little bit late. Honestly, I planned on doing it Friday. I just forgot. I have no good excuse. But then yesterday, my son and I went on a pretty sweet uh, Slot Canyon adventure in the high desert, so I didn't do it yesterday either. So after I'm done teaching today, that's when you get it. So we're going to talk some Doctrine and Covenants 60 through 62. Hopefully, you'll forgive me for my tardiness, but let's jump in and do it. Ready? So after only a couple of weeks in Missouri, Joseph has basically accomplished what God commanded him to do there. He has dedicated the Western Missouri as Zion, and a spot near the courthouse has been dedicated uh, as the site for the temple in the New Jerusalem. So now he goes to the Lord and he asks, what's next? And in response, he receives Doctrine and Covenants section 60. Now, just as a side note, Ezra Booth and Isaac Morley were supposed to be preaching from Kirtland all the way to Missouri. That's uh, the commandment given them back in Doctrine and Covenants 52 verse 23. But they arrived way early, basically indicating that they had not done any preaching at all. They had just been walking. And the rest of the missionaries who are preaching on the uh, way uh, are going to be arriving here in a bit. So anyways, right off the bat in Doctrine and Covenants section 60, God calls out Ezra and Isaac saying, verse 3, With some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them, and it shall come to pass, if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. Basically, God is saying, I trusted you, and you proved untrustworthy. You, You let your fear control your life, and you didn't share what I've given you. It's like he, he's saying this. This is a, a parable God uses frequently, but he says it basically this way. You got an, an owner of a successful local company, and so he approaches three of his trusted management team, and he says, all right, my wife wants to go somewhere warmer, and I like her face, so we're going to go take off and go to Costa Rica for a year. A year? Dang! Yeah, it's quite a leap. He says, we're going to go down there and live in a house on a beach bordered by the jungle. And we're going to basically be off the grid so I won't be in touch for a whole year. And and truth be told, it's not just for my hot wife. The doctor says if I don't settle down, my heart's going to give out. So La Playa it is. Anyways, I'm leaving you three in charge of the company. You know your roles. and, And let's be real. This thing practically runs itself. But that's not really why I called you in. Here's the thing. I have a substantial bit of capital that I'd like to entrust you uh, with, since I have no real way of managing it where I'm going. They all loved him, and they said they were willing to do it. So to the first guy, he gives $500,000, half a million dollars, right? To the second, he gives 300000 And to the third, he gives 150000 each according to his age, experience, and capacity. And in a year's time, which actually turned out to seem shorter than anyone thought, the owner returns. He walks in the door bronzed, rested, healthy, 
Um, and, and his lovely bride at his side just looks re-energized. It's like they're in love again. Anyways, he calls in his trusted surrogates uh, and he asks them to give him a report. The first one reported that he had took the capital and started a second business on behalf of the owner. He took the money and began a solar company. And as shocking as it is, with the help of an enthusiastic returned missionary summer sales staff, they had produced enough revenue to rival the original business. The owner is just exploding with excitement. He's like a coach who just won a game in the NCAA tournament excited. Like he's like, that's amazing. He's like, here we go, man. Guess what? I'm deeding all of that business to you. You've proved you can be trusted. And that's really all I was looking for. Go forward, build an empire, enjoy, I love you. Thanks for proving worthy of my trust. That's awesome, dude. Then the second steward comes forward. He's a little more mellow. And the owner knew this from the start. His laid back enjoyment of simple things is one of the things the owner likes best about him. So he's not surprised when the the second man reports that he took the funds and invested them in a no-fee automated index fund, and he was able to make a surprising 10% return, $30,000, just like that, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. The owner's response is, dude, that's my boy. Good job. Hey, I have a surprise for you, he says. That money, that $30,000, it's all yours. Enjoy. Buy season ski passes, put a down payment on a boat or a cabin, and just continue to live the good life. Aloha, my brother. Then the third guy approaches. Now, he is probably smarter and more talented than the other two combined, but he's also a nervous purvis. And that plays out here in this situation. Well, he said after I took the cash out, I took it home and I spread it all over my bed and I rolled around in it for a minute. And I thought really hard about what I should do. I knew you had worked really hard for this money and so I didn't want to lose any of it. I knew that there was a risk investing it in a business or the stock market, so I did the wise thing, the third guy says. I put the money in a box and I put that box in a box and I took it out to my backyard and under the light of a full moon, I dug a hole and buried your money. And now here it is, presenting a dirt-covered box, beaming, he says, count it. It's all there. I didn't lose any of it. And the owner surprisingly doesn't beam back. In fact, he looks kind of pissed. Apparently, La Playa vibes are wearing off in the face of the story. And the owner replies, dude, this sucks. I could have made more money keeping it in my checking account. What are you thinking? I trusted you with this money to live. If you would have risked it and failed, I would have given you the same amount right now. I have plenty, but I can't trust a coward. So he pushes the box over to the first guy and says, here you go. Put this towards growing your empire. And as for you, he says, turning on the third guy, I can't trust anyone whose main advisor is fear. You're fired. (laughs) Dang. What do you make of that? Um, Now, I'm not going to over-explain this because that's just death to parables, but remember the context, right? Uh, 
They've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ and commissioned to share it, but Ezra and Isaac were too afraid to talk to people. Hmm. That's intriguing. Anyway, let's go back to the original question. What should we do next? Verse 1. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto the elders of his church, who are to return speedily to the land whence they come. So turn around and go back by the way of St. Louis and Cincinnati and take your journey two by two and preach the word, not in haste among the congregations. Lift up your voices and declare my word with loud voices, without wrath, without doubting, lifting up holy hands upon them. For I am able to make you holy and your sins are forgiven you. Thou shalt not idle away thy time, neither shalt thou bury thy talent, that it may not be known. That's an interesting comment. So go back, preach the gospel along the way. And and he's like, but don't idle away your time. Elder Ballard comments on this. He says, one of the ways Satan lessens your effectiveness and weakens your spiritual strength is by encouraging you to spend large blocks of your time doing things that matter very little. I speak of such things as sitting for hours on end, watching television or videos, playing video games, night in and night out, surfing the internet, or devoting huge blocks of time to sports, games, or other recreational activities. One of the greatest challenges of this life is the ordering of priorities. If we do not do this wisely, then things that matter most in life are at the mercy of things that matter the least. End quote. That's powerful. In, in a similar vein, Elder Bednar has said this, quote, Our physical bodies make possible a breadth, a depth, and an intensity of experience that simply could not be obtained in our premortal estate. If the adversary cannot entice us to misuse our physical bodies, then one of his most potent tactics is to beguile you and me as embodied spirits to disconnect gradually and physically from things as they really are. In essence, he encourages us to think and act as if we were in our premortal unembodied state. And if we let him, he can cunningly employ some aspects of modern technology to accomplish his purposes. Please be careful of becoming so immersed and engrossed in pixels, texting, earbuds, and Twittering, online social networking, and potentially addictive uses of media and internet that you fail to recognize the importance of your physical body and miss the richness of person-to-person communication. Beware of digital displays and data in many forms of computer-mediated interaction that can displace the full range of physical capacity and experience. End quote. So just be careful of idling away your time, the Lord says. Don't substitute fake life for the vividness of real life the richness that God has to offer you here. Anyway, following the Lord's command to return home, Joseph and 10 other elders bought some canoes and then they traveled north of Independence to the Missouri River and embarked on an adventure home. After the first day, they they camped at Fort Oswege. I don't know if that's even right. Sorry, Osage, Osage, I don't know. And Joseph says they had an excellent wild turkey for supper. 
But the second day does not go so smoothly as anyone who has ever been on any sort of camp out or family vacation can attest. There was, quote, a spirit of animosity and discord, end quote, that had infected the group. And, quote, the conduct of the elders became very displeasing to Oliver Cowdery. And he prophesied, as the Lord liveth, if you do not behave better, some accident will befall you. And at some point, William Phelps sees the destroyer in his most horrible power right upon the face of the waters. The third day, it gets even worse. Contention continues. Joseph gets frustrated. Some elders refuse to paddle. Like, that's kind of the worst. You're doing all the work and you guys are just sitting there. And at least one of the canoes hits a submerged tree and nearly capsizes. So Joseph has everybody pull over the, (laughs) I will pull this car over, right? They pull over to the side of the river. But some of the men don't approve and they, they, they say Joseph's a coward for stopping. And so they spend the evening clear into early hours of the morning in heated discussion. Dude, they're just yelling at each other. One or two accuse Joseph and Oliver of being highly imperious and dictatorial um, and told Joseph to stop making threats. Like finally, after several hours, they're finally reconciled. And Joseph's history says, the next morning after prayer, I received the following Doctrine and Covenant 61. So God starts 61 and he says, first of all, this is a missionary journey. So let's talk about your mode of transportation. Verse 3, verily I say unto you that it is not needful for this whole company of mine elders to be moving swiftly upon the waters whilst the inhabitants of the, on either side are perishing in unbelief. In other words, maybe canoe isn't the best option to preach my gospel. And along those lines, verse 4, there are many dangers upon the waters and more especially hereafter. Moreover, verse 5, For I, the Lord, have decreed in mine anger many destructions upon the waters, yea, especially upon these waters. Behold, I, the Lord, in the beginning blessed the waters, but in the last days by the mouth of my servant John I have cursed the waters. Wherefore, the days will come that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters. I, the Lord, have decreed that the destroyer riding upon the face thereof, and I revoke not that decree. What on earth? earth is he talking about? Destroyer on the waters, destruction on the waters. What the heck is going on? Well, I can tell you about what the missionaries thought he was talking about when I was on my mission. You see, I served in Northeast Brazil along some of the most stunning coastline you can imagine. I lived in one area, one block from the beach uh, in one house. It was stunningly beautiful. At another area, uh, sometimes we were able to go on preparation day to the beach. And I I know in some missions, this is taboo because, well, the cute and affordable apparel being modeled at the beach is, let's say, cursory. Anyways, we, we were in a more rural area. And on our preparation day, there was nobody at the beach. So we could go out to the beach and go sandboarding on the dunes, build sandcastles, leap great distances in the dunes, and even have some pretty epic WWF wrestling matches on the soft sand. Anyways, by the time we were done, there was sand everywhere in my body. So help me everywhere. And it would have been heaven to rinse those granules off my body with a quick dip in the ocean. Instead, 
I sat on the back of the bus caked in sand like I just experienced a storm in the Sahara, like I was a mummy in one of those movies, right? And trying so hard not to scratch because scratching just made it more abrasive as the tiny seeds just irritated my eyes and my ears and my mouth and my nose like sand everywhere. So why did I just sit still as a statue covered in sand instead of rinsing clean? Because it was against mission rules to go in the ocean. And why was it against mission rules? Well, according to the missionaries in my mission, the ocean and the rivers were Satan's domain. Like Greek mythology where old Zeus rules the heavens and Poseidon, the angry deep. The missionaries saw God above and Satan below waiting with his demons to drag any unsuspecting name tag wearing messenger down to Davy Jones' locker. But if that's the case, why do we let senior missionaries, depending on their mission, go swimming and snorkeling while they serve the Lord? And why do we have an abundance of scripture stating that it's God, not Satan, who rules the waters? In fact, when God sends the destroyer upon the waters in other scriptures, it's his angel, not Satan, that he he sends there. So it's really likely that God is referring to an angel here, not some sort of demonic possession of the water. It's most likely that he's referring to some of the intrinsic dangers that just exist on the Missouri River at the time. See, the the Missouri River is very difficult to navigate. Like, it's got fast water, changing sandbars, sunken trees, and it wrecked and sank boats all the time. If you're interested, just check out the account Lewis and Clark give as they describe trying to get up that river. Additionally, disease is just rampant on the river. You remember playing Oregon Trail growing up? Uh, If not, stop right now and go play around on the internet of some Oregon Trail emulator. It will make you happy. Did you do it? You died of dysentery, didn't you? Yeah, like back in the day, this is a real thing. Dysentery, malaria, cholera, all of it. Like malaria is huge. You got these swarms of disease-carrying mosquitoes infecting you along the Missouri River. And cholera is epidemic in the world, like killing millions right now. So it seems that the sort of destruction the Lord is warning about is that sort of destruction. So if that's the case, why can't missionaries go swimming in the ocean? I'll tell you why they can't go swimming in the motion. Because missionaries, they dumb. Like, that's why. It's the same reason we have rules for missionaries that tell them they can't adopt people from their mission or shoot off fireworks inside their houses. We have an actual rule that tells 19-year-olds not to light off fireworks inside their houses. They dumb. That's why. (laughs) Anyway, after this commandment, They leave their boats and they begin traveling home by land and they run into a bunch of their friends, Hiram Smith, David Whitmer, John Murdoch, Harvey Whitlock. They're still en route to Zion. And these guys had been preaching up a gospel and preaching up a storm. And so it took them a little longer than slackers like Ezra Booth. And so the, the Lord had promised clear back in Doctrine and Covenants 54 verse 42 that these guys would meet up in Zion. But if things had gone smoothly, they hadn't have met up. There might be something to consider in that lack of smoothness in our life. 
Anyways, after they caught up with one another, Joseph prays and receives Doctrine and Covenants 62. In there, God gives an interesting command that he tells them, verse 5, that they may return as seemeth you good. It mattereth not unto me. Only be faithful and declare glad tidings. What? It mattereth not unto me? Oh, some of you who are big planners will not be okay with this. You don't care, God? What do you mean you don't care? How could you not care about something as important as missionary work? Well, cuidado. He's not saying he doesn't care. He's saying it doesn't matter. That's interesting. And it's actually a phrase that God says surprisingly quite a lot. Like, it gives the overall objective, Doctrine and Covenants 27 verse 2. Partake of the sacrament in remembrance of my body and my blood. But then he says, it mattereth not what food or drink you use to achieve this end. Or in verse, chapter section 60 verse 5, get to St. Louis. It mattereth not if you get there in a craft you made or one you purchased. Section 61, verse 21 and 22. Take your journey in haste, fulfill your mission. It mattereth not unto me if your journey be by water or land to do so. 62, verse 5. Return home to Kirtland after your mission is done. It mattereth not unto me if you come home all together or in companionships, just get home. 63, verse 40. Send all spare money to the land of Zion. It mattereth not unto me how much. Doctrine coming to section 80, verse 3. Preach my gospel. It mattereth not where. Dude, th- this is really important to understand. So, so, so often we are paralyzed. We don't do anything because we don't want to do the wrong thing. We worry about jobs, majors, marriage, and so many other things afraid to get it wrong. But God is basically saying you can't get it wrong. Why? Because you're working for Jesus. Section 61 verse 1. Behold and hearken unto the voice of him who has all power who is from everlasting to everlasting, even Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Behold, verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, O you elders of my church who are assembled upon this spot, whose sins are now forgiven you. I, the Lord, forgive sins and I am merciful. Nevertheless, all flesh is in mine hands and he that is faithful among you shall not perish by the waters. Verse 36. And now verily I say unto you, What I say unto you, I say unto all, be of good cheer, little children, for I am in your midst, I have not forsaken you. And inasmuch as you have humbled yourself before me, the blessings of the kingdom of yours. 62 verse 1, behold and hearken, O you elders of the church, saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, your advocate, who knoweth the weakness of man and how to succor them who are tempted. Basically he's saying, you can't screw this up. Should you become a dentist or a doctor? It mattereth not. Should you marry Kenzie or Lindy? It mattereth not. Now, I know some of you just threw your phones in disgust because that can't possibly be true. It goes against every deeply held and fully ingrained bit of doctrine you have absorbed from Snow White singing about how someday her prince will come to every movie Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have ever acted in together. For the record, that number is four, and they're all basically the exact same movie. 
And sure, there are exceptions, but they are exceptions. Mostly God is saying that it really doesn't matter. As long as you love him and love those around you, the world is really wide open. The question is just, what do you want to do? Beyond that, verse 28, let him do as the spirit of the living God commandeth him and you'll be in great shape. Well, you say, that's just one thing. How do I know if the spirit of the Lord is commanding me or if it's just me? Well, number one, it mattereth not. But in case you need more, Elder Bednar comments on this. He says, how do you tell if it's the Holy Ghost or just me? Answer, quit worrying about it. Quit fussing, quit stewing, quit analyzing, quit worrying about it. Press forward with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Honor your covenants. Keep the commandments. And I promise you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your steps will be guided. And as you open your mouth, it will be filled. You will be in the right place at the right time. And in most instances, you will have no idea why or how you got there. So quit worrying about it. Somehow, some way in the culture of the church, not in the doctrine, but in the culture of the church, we have come to believe that I must know in the moment that it's a spiritual impression, that I must receive the spiritual impression so that it will guide me and tell me what to do. And that unless I receive such an impression, I cannot go forward because I won't know what to do. Now, every once in a while, rarely, you will receive an impression that will guide you and you will know it before the fact. The overwhelming majority of the impressions and revelations you will ever receive will come in the course of you being a good boy or a good girl, honoring your covenants, keeping the commandments, and you will become an instrument in the hands of God and he will take you where you need to be so that you can do what he wants you to do. And much of the time, you will never know that it's happening that way. End quote. So relax and just go after good things. God will take care of you. I promise. I really do. Years ago, I was sitting around the lunch table at work and I listened to stories about how two or three of my colleagues had just sold their houses at a huge profit and moved into awesome new homes. So on a whim, legit on a whim, this is not a like well-calculated thing, my wife and I listed our house. And sure enough, within days, we had an offer on our house that would make us a bucket of money above what we had paid for our house a few years earlier. So we excitedly accepted the offer, only to run into one small problem. We didn't actually have anywhere to move to. So we looked at a bunch of houses, but since we're both pretty fiscally conservative, the houses we looked at smelled like potato cellars and there was a decent chance that they were haunted. So when the inspection on our house came back with the demand that we repaint the door jams to the garage, I was ready to reject the demand just to have the cell fall through so that I could have somewhere to live. But, 
more sane minds prevailed, aka Kristen. And I painted the door frames. And then at night, I went for a bike ride through the city I live in. And I came across a new development. I thought a lot of the houses looked too similar, kind of all drawn from the same color palette of beige to taupe. But I thought, what the heck? And we went and we checked out the model home and looked at the available lots and thought, oh, this could be good. It's in our price zone, big house, big yard, no toenails in the carpet or ghosts smelling like potatoes. So we talked about it and prayed earnestly about it and nothing. God said, it mattereth not. So we moved forward. And it worked out perfectly. Good friends, great neighbors, wonderful kids. Win, win, win. You see, when God says it mattereth not, it's not a statement of disinterest that you, or that you can't win. But rather, it's a statement of the fact that with the spirit of the living God, you can't lose. In the name of the Son of the living God, Amen.